in Exodus chapter 20, and then secondly in Ephesians chapter 5. And God spoke all these words, moving on to verse 12. Honour your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbour, you shall not covet your neighbour's house, you shall not covet your neighbour's wife, or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbour. And then into Ephesians chapter 5. Verses 1 to 10. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, or of any kind of impurity, or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving, for of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Well, we've uh, had quite a sharp change in seasons today, haven't we? And um, I, I read this poem this week. It was spring, but it was summer I wanted, the warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted, the colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted, the beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter. But it was spring I wanted, the warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, and it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted, to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted, to be free and youthful. I was retired, but it was middle-aged I wanted, the presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, and I never got what I wanted. From the moment we are born, we're dissatisfied with what we have, aren't we? You see a toddler with both hands full of toys that are bringing them boundless joy until they see another toddler with a different toy. You get into your teenage years, and... The longing is growing and growing, and it doesn't stop when you're in your 20s and your 30s. Singles long to be married, while many marrieds wish their marriages were more like someone else's. If lots of people who long to have one of the kind of top jobs, 
And then you spend time with people who have those jobs and they are struggling with all of the pressure and long to have an easier life. And it doesn't end when you hit retirement because for so many, you look out and long to have the health that somebody else has in their retirement or to be as close to their family as they are in their retirement. And all of those factors in every single season of life make you realize that this isn't just a case of having an itch or or looking on the other side of the fence and seeing that the grass is greener over there. There's a heart wrestle in our hearts that the Bible calls coveting, and instinctively we know it's wrong. But why is it wrong? Why is coveting such a serious thing? And if it is so serious, how does God enable Christians to fight against coveting? That's where we're going to go this morning. First of all, what is coveting? You might be new to church and you've never asked that question before. You might have been in this church for decades, but it's been so long since you answered the question, you might have forgotten how you would answer it. When Moses recorded this law from God, he recorded it in his own language of Hebrew. And in the Hebrew, Chapter 20, verse 17, literally begins, you shall not desire. At its root, this commandment is all about the things that we long for and desire. But but God isn't commanding his people not to desire anything. That's Buddhism, not Christianity. Buddhism teaches that longings are an unhelpful thing because they are not fulfilled. And because they're not fulfilled, the pursuit of a longing leaves you suffering in all of the lack of fulfillment. So the best thing to do, so your Buddhist friends would tell you, is not to have any desire at all because then you won't live in any form of suffering. That's not what God teaches in his word. The Bible is full of loads of ways in which God shows us the goodness of desiring things. So you get into one of the most well-quoted psalms, Psalm 19, where God describes the beauty not only of creation but of his word. And God tells us that his law, his commands, are more to be desired. It's the same word that we've got in the commandment. More to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. You work your way through the rest of the Bible, and the Bible tells us it's not wrong to desire food or drink or sex or children or even a better home. There are caveats and contexts to each of those desires, but desire in itself isn't a bad thing. And we know that for sure because God tells us we're to desire him more than anything else. Psalm 73 is one of those great psalms. If you're wrestling with how the rest of the world seems to be prospering even when they don't desire God and Christians seem to be suffering, Asaph had exactly that struggle. Psalm 73 Enabled to see the context of all that God is doing. And Asaph came to see, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. So desiring in itself isn't the problem. But actually, for us, that in itself can be a bit of a problem. (laughs) Because how do we then know whether what we are longing for is a godly thing to long for or is a sinful thing? to long for. And we're going to address that question in just a minute. But before we get there, we need to be really clear what coveting is. 
So, back to Exodus 20. The first thing is that coveting is longing for things that belong to others. That's what verse 17 clearly tells us. God doesn't stop at you shall not covet, you shall not desire. He says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. And that's a pattern that we've seen in the commandments already. If you go back to verse 10, we saw this when we were thinking about the Sabbath. God uses these lists not to tell us, here's the exhaustive list of things you're not allowed to envy, but you can cover anything else that you like. It's a, it's a list of specifics so that we start to think what this looks like in practice. But the way God layers all of these specifics on top of each other show us that the principle is supposed to apply to everything. God is saying, you're not to long for or cover or desire anything that belongs to someone else. And for most of us, that's what we instinctively think about when we think about coveting, isn't it? So many of you will be in somebody else's house for lunch this afternoon. God calls us not to covet their new house or their tidy kitchen. You're going to drive to work, many of you, tomorrow and may park next to somebody else's snazzing new wheels in the car park. They belong to someone else, not for us to covet. And we can wrestle with that as a church, not just as individual Christians, but as a church. You, you might visit another church and find that they have a full car park where you can park at leisure. And there's not cars bumbling into one another. And they've got masses of space to grow in the auditorium. And before you know it, you're coveting another church's building. Part of what God is commanding us to do here is to not desire things that belong to someone else. But another part of coveting is longing for things God's forbidden. See, coveting isn't just a problem to do with personal property. God's not just saying we're going to prevent theft by dealing with the root issue so that you don't long for something that belongs to somebody else. So it, this is all a kind of justice question. Listen, listen to how our forefathers explained what is going on in this commandment. When the, the Heidelberg Catechism is one of these lovely descriptions from church history of, of what the Bible teaches and what it means for us to believe it. And uh, one of the catechism questions, number 113, says, what's required of the 10th commandment? That not even the least inclination or thought against any of God's commandments ever enter into our heart, but that with our whole heart we continually hate all sin and take pleasure in all righteousness. Not even the least inclination or thought against any of God's commandments ever enter into our heart. Do you see where the battle begins? It doesn't begin when you look at that person or their house or their things. It begins in our hearts because our hearts are covetous by nature. Part of what it means to be men and women in this world is that we have inherited the sinful nature of Adam and Eve. So that means we are born as rebels. 
We don't long in our natural instinct for the things that God wants. And God says that if any thought at all comes into your mind that is contrary to his will, that's forbidden. However long it's in your heart, however long you entertain what you might do with it, whether or not you then put it into action, the least inclination or thought against any of God's commandments is what is in view here. That's going to help us see how serious this commandment is and coveting is. And we're going to dig into that in just a minute. But before we get there, I want to pause and dig into this question that is going to be going through many of your minds right now. Um, how do you distinguish between good desires and sinful desires? If there are good desires and good things that God longs for and tells us in his word that are precious things, how do we pursue those things in a way that doesn't become sinful? How do you long for a husband or a wife without longing sinfully? How do you long for children without desiring to have them in a sinful way? How do you long for a job without letting your heart stray into sin? They're the hard and real questions that are at play here. The most um, helpful resource I've ever read on coveting is Melissa Kruger's book, The Envy of Eve. And if you've struggled with this issue at all, I really do commend it to you. In it, she, directs, she, she addresses that question directly and lists four heart checks to help us as Christians dig into whether our hearts are longing for something that God tells us is good and right to long for, but actually we're doing so in a sinful way. So, first of all, we're sinning if the object of our desire is wrong. So, if you're not just longing for a husband, but for her husband, that longing has become sinful because you're thinking in an adulterous way. If you're longing for a bigger house for your growing family, but you don't just want a bigger house, you want their bigger house... See how the, motive, the, the longing has shifted from a, a good longing to a sinful longing. Secondly, we're sinning if the means to go about obtaining our desire is wrong. Um, many of you have jobs in business where, where you're responsible, in part, for going out into the world and trying to get new business. And, and part of your responsibility is to bring in enough work to keep all of your fellow employees and staff in business. And they are good, godly responsibilities and ambitions to have. But if the way you go about getting that work is to lie in your pitch document or make promises that you can't keep, it's shifted from being a good desire to a sinful one. Melissa helps us see another way, too, that we're sinning if the motivation for our desire is wrong. So it's not sinful to look after your home. Of course it isn't. It's not sinful to care about your children getting an education that's going to help them grow and flourish as children made in the image of God. Of course it isn't. But so often our struggle is that we then take another step 
So often we don't just want our homes to look nice. We want them to look better than or cleaner than or more desirable than someone else's. Sometimes the motivation behind a good education is more about idolizing certain careers or lifestyles than it is thinking about what is really necessary for our kids. That the heart struggle that all of us have to keep examining is what is my motivation as I'm pursuing something that is commended in God's word so that I would guard my heart from covetousness. And fourthly, we're sinning if the attitude while we're waiting for our desire is wrong. Now, we've seen this with the Israelites in Exodus already, haven't we? They were only out of Egypt for a few weeks, and they already started whinging. They refused to wait just a few weeks and started complaining and saying to God, oh, we'd much rather we were back in slavery in the horrors of Egypt than waiting for God to honor his word as he's already done in miraculous ways. And each of us know that same struggle as well. It's not wrong to long for a new job if you're unemployed or underemployed. That's a good longing. God has made us to work. But if in the waiting we allow our hearts to become resentful and bitter, then we've made that step from a good longing to a sinful longing. Now, if we could wrap all of those ideas up in a third aspect to coveting, we might say that coveting is longing sinfully for good things God's chosen to withhold. And I think for many of us, that might be our greatest struggle in coveting. It's not that the things that we're longing for are sinful in and of themselves, but in the way that we insist on having them here and now, in the way that we think that we need them, actually our waiting, our longing becomes sinful. Now, I I imagine all of us can identify with struggles in at least one of those camps. And that gets us to our next question. What then is so serious about coveting? We've been in the commandments long enough for you to be familiar with the kinds of issues that God highlights here. This is the list that includes committing adultery and murder. Why is it that coveting makes this list? Why is it so important? There's loads of things we could say here. I just want to focus on two things this morning. Number one, coveting is so serious because it attacks the greatness and the goodness of God. You may not have thought about coveting as being that big a deal before. But that's what we're doing. We're looking around at the circumstances in our lives and we are setting our hearts on something God's chosen not to give us at this time. And then that struggle to covet, whether it's something that belongs to someone else, something that God said is forbidden, or something that God's chosen to withhold at this point, whichever of those struggles is at play, our heart response is saying one of two things. God, either you're not powerful enough to give me what I want, or you're powerful enough, but you're good in, not good enough to give me what I want. 
what we're doing is setting ourselves up as God. We're falling for that lie that Eve bought from the devil in the Garden of Eve, Garden of Eden, where she was convinced that she knew best what would be right for her. All of us, when we're coveting, what we're doing is we're putting that thing, whatever it might be, that we don't yet have, above God and saying, God, I know best. You've not given this to me for any of those reasons, but I know that this is what I need now, and that is more important than my trusting in you. See why coveting is so serious. And can you see the link between coveting and idolatry? We're replacing God with our own assessment of what we think is best, which is why Fiona kindly read from Ephesians 5 for us. And if you flick back to Ephesians 5, just to see how clearly Paul makes that link. Um, I'm actually going to read it in the ESV only because they use the same word for coveting, so it's easier to spot. But there in Ephesians 5, verse 4, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, But instead, let there be thanksgiving, for you may be sure of this, that whoever, that everyone, sorry, who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. The heart of coveting, you see, is an idolatry of the thing that we want. We insist on having. We want right now on our own time frame, in our terms. We're putting those things above God. But the horror of coveting doesn't stop there. Secondly, coveting is a besetting and a begetting sin. I know they're old-fashioned words, but they helpfully explain what we're getting at here. A besetting sin is one that is just prevalent everywhere. It's like the willow herb weed in my garden, if you remember, a few weeks ago. You you think you've pulled out some, and it just keeps popping up everywhere. Coveting appears in our relationships, in our jobs, in our churches, in our families, in everything that may be going on in your world. Coveting is one of those besetting sins, but it's also a begetting sin. It gives birth to other sins. That's what James warns us about. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. I read one writer this week who put that like this. Coveting is the incubation of greedy desire until an embryo of an evil thought hatches into godless action. That's how coveting works, isn't it? See, the problem with coveting is that it's not just one of the ten. It breeds and grows into all of the other ten commandments. And there's maybe no example in the Bible that it shows that more clearly than David. Perhaps one of the greatest kings in Old Testament Israel, who should have been leading his men in battle at this particular point in the year, but he wasn't. He was at home looking out the window. And there was a lovely lady washing coveting but doesn't stop at coveting coveting begets other sin 
So he then steals and commits adultery and murders and lies. Because of this root sin of coveting. That is how coveting works. It's besetting and begetting. Now, I don't know whether you've ever thought about coveting quite that seriously before. But when you stop and see it in the context of all the Bible's describing, it's massive and it's everywhere. And there's not one of us in this room who, if we're honest, thinks we have the power within ourselves to control all of those evil desires. So what's the hope of the gospel? There are times when we need to do this, especially with things that we're familiar with. We need to stretch our understanding of the enormity of the problem so that we would see the significance and the sufficiency of God's provision in the gospel. That's what I want us to see as we close. How does Jesus enable us to fight coveting? First of all, Jesus destroys the power of coveting. Destroys the power of coveting. What did we think that coveting is all about? It's about destroying the greatness and the goodness of God. Okay? And here's how we might live that out in the way that we think about God. If you don't think about God in a biblical way. So if you think, well, God created the world some way, don't know how. And then it all went wrong. And God just turned his back on this world, left it to be a complete mess and left us to ourselves, then we might have reason to think that God isn't great or powerful in control or good because of all that is going on. But that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible, in the moment that our first parents sinned, covenanted himself to the people who'd rebelled against him. He put into action in our history a plan that had been created in eternity past, such that in the enormity of his control over all things, the greatness of God, God would orchestrate all of human history and the prophecies over thousands of years into a population of I don't know how many millions of people between Adam and Eve and Jesus coming such that his greatness would be seen in his son coming to fulfill every single one of those promises. How do you know about the goodness of God? One of the flip ways of thinking about coveting is it's not necessarily just the things that you're longing for you don't have. It's the way that you hold on to the things you've already got and refuse to give them away. Can you think of an act of counter-coveting any greater than Jesus? Leaving aside all the riches and glory that were eternally his in heaven and stepping into our world to live the perfect life that these commandments show us none of us can possibly live. And then to die upon the cross, suffering not just the physical agony of all of the scorn and the abuse of all of the people who were physically involved in the crucifixion and then the crucifixion itself, but suffering the just judgment of God against all of the sin of every person who would ever, ever trust in Jesus. If you look at Jesus, you cannot ignore the greatness and the goodness of God. In his coming, 
in all that he has done, he has shown us that if we truly understand who God is, we cannot fall for this power of coveting because it's based on the lie that God isn't great or he isn't good. And then we look to Jesus. But he also came, secondly, to pay the price for our coveting. He's actually dealt with our sinful coveting heart. He came to suffer and die and be raised again for coveting people like me and you. And you know that because Paul teaches us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you, us, were. Here's our name, writ large, with all of the sins that we struggle with. And Jesus came to die for greedy, covetous people like us. And you know that's true because that's what Paul goes on to say. But here's the change that comes when you repent of your sin, you trust in Jesus, you were washed. You were sanctified, meaning made pure. You were justified, meaning God declares you righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of, and by the Spirit of our God. And that can be true for you this morning. If you have looked at this list of Ten Commandments and you got to coveting and thought, well, yeah, it's a bit of a struggle, but you know, it's not a big deal. And you've thought this morning about how serious coveting is. Jesus Christ has come to pay the penalty for everything you've coveted. You can know the peace that is described in this verse of being someone who has been completely washed. The dirt is gone. You're sanctified and set clean before God and justified so that he looks upon you with the righteousness of his son. Not because you've tidied up your life. Not because you've worked really hard on suppressing those evil, sinful thoughts and you've stopped looking at whoever's house it is, whoever's partner it is, or whatever else it is, and you've just fought for it yourself. We haven't got the power within us to do that. But the Son of God who has come lives within you with a power that has not only completely changed because you've been justified, but is progressively changing you through the work of His Spirit so that you can be different. He destroys the power of coveting. He pays the price for our coveting, but he does even more than that. He gives us something eternally satisfying to desire. I think one of the lies that we still believe as Christians is that God's plan is to kill our joy. And when you get to coveting, maybe you think, oh, the answer is that I just suppress all my desires because it's easier that way that way I'm not going to struggle with any of the sinful ones and I'm not going to struggle sinfully with any of the good desires but that's not why Jesus came Jesus has not come to dial down all of your desires to zero so that we will be lifeless joyless people in the world he's come to explode our desire a billion fold and center all of that desire on the one person in the entire universe who can meet it and exceed it every single time. That's what Jesus explained in John 10. He describes himself as the good shepherd 
of his sheep. He tells us that he is the only gate through which we can come to him. And of all the blessings that come from being brought into his presence and cared for by his love, he says to us, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That is not the good life. In England's green and pleasant land with a spouse and 2.4 kids in a detached house on the countryside. All of those things will fall away. Jesus has come to grow your desire, to satisfy your desire, and to do so for all eternity because it is rooted in the one who can fulfill it. It's a relationship with God of peace. And that's a staggering thing because our God is the holy God of heaven. But if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, he has dealt with your sins so that your relationship with God is one of peace. It's a relationship of hope that is always looking forward. It's one of the lovely lines that David Dunagani had last night when he was talking about his experience of suffering through two of his children having this horrendously debilitating mental and physical disorder. One of the lovely things he said was, it's made me fix my eyes on heaven more. Less than naught point, not, 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 not one percent of your eternal life is lived on planet Earth. And the hope that we have for our eternal future is in a new creation where there will be no more coveting or envy or suffering or need. And because all of those things are true, we have a relationship of peace and a relationship of hope. We now know a relationship of contentment and trust. That's the great antidote to coveting. When, when the longing of our hearts is taken up with God, our hearts are content to trust him. Not because he's necessarily going to change our circumstances he may not. In fact, our circumstances may get worse. But the solution to coveting isn't a tweak in our circumstances. It's a transformation in our relationship with God. And that is what the Lord Jesus Christ enables all of us to experience as we grow in our trust in him. So if you're a Christian here this morning, I wonder if I can ask you the same questions I've been asking myself over the last three days. Three questions have just been hitting my heart as we've been thinking about coveting. Do I really know that I'm forgiven? I don't mean that in a sense of doubting it. I mean, do I truly understand what it means to be forgiven? And as I look at that, do I know how much God loves me? And because he's forgiven me and loves me, third thing, how much am I looking forward to my eternal home? Hannah reminded me of this lovely quote from Richard Baxter. 
Oh, that Christians would learn to live with one eye on Christ and the other on his coming in glory. If everlasting joys were more in your thoughts, my thoughts, spiritual joy would abound more in our hearts. No wonder you're comfortless when heaven is forgotten. When Christians let fall their heavenly expectations but heighten their earthly joys, they are preparing themselves for fear and trouble. What keeps us under trouble is either we do not expect what God has promised or we expect what he did not promise. What keeps us under trouble is either we do not expect what God has promised or we expect what he did not promise. Christians, our God wants us to be people burning with passion. But not for the trappings of this life that will quickly fade. For a Savior who has given everything to save us, for an eternal future in which we will enjoy all of the blessings that come from His hand forever, and with a passion to tell others of a hope that will never fail. Let's pray that God would do that more and more in our lives. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we barely know where to begin when we think of how much we fail to find our contentment in a God who has given everything for us. Father, we beg of you to help us keep eternity and the temporal in perspective. Father, we beg of you to help us not to make false divisions in our mind, that we would think it wrong to ever long for anything, including the good things that you have commanded us to long for in your word. Father, would you give us the wisdom to long for those things in the right way, in a way that shows our contentment with what you've given us now, our trust in you to provide us with all that we need, and Father, with a willingness to trust that you are working in our lives and in our hearts now in ways that are greater than we would ever, ever be able to achieve if we could do things our way. Father, this is such a heart struggle for us. And I pray that for every single one of my brothers and sisters and myself included, you would please be showing us that your great purpose in our lives is not to give us small and passing blessings, but to use everything in our lives to shape us and conform us into the image of your Son. And perhaps we need to begin by confessing that our longing for that goal is not what it should be. Father, please, would your spirit be so at work in our hearts that as we fix our eyes on Jesus, there is nothing else in the world that we want than to be more like him. For some of us, you will choose to continue that work in us by 
bringing us into marriage with another saved sinner or bringing children into those families. For others, you will be at work equally bringing us to become more and more like Jesus without a spouse or children. Father, there are so many other ways in which we can see that those good blessings are not the only things that are achieving for us our eternal reward of becoming transformed into the image of your son whom you love. And we want to be more like him. So please, would you be gracious and gentle with our hearts. Help us to long for good desires in a godly way. And for all of the other things that are either forbidden or that we can sinfully long for, Father, please would we see that your grace is sufficient and no joy in all of the contentment that you give us here and now. Father, we pray these things, not only because we want to be obedient to your word, but because we want to be a witness to the world that in every season of life, with all the things that you give or withhold, you are sufficient. And we want others to know and love that too. Make us different people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.